0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, in John chapter 19, we left off with verse 30, where Jesus, after he received the sour wine, said, it is finished, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. On the cross, of course, a powerful and meaningful moment for every believer, past, present, and future, to remember and recognize the absolute all-sufficiency of the cross of Christ. When Jesus says, it is finished, we understand him to mean that there on that cross, after he had been atoning for the sin of the world for three hours in total darkness and had been experiencing the wrath of God being poured out upon him, the cup of God's wrath. After experiencing all of that, Jesus then proclaims in a victorious sense, it is finished. And it says in verse 31, as we continue on, it says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, this was a customary kind of request that the Jews are making. Quite often, people would remain on the cross for many hours and even days. And the Jews wanted to make sure that each one of these people that were dying that day would not actually die on a Sabbath. And so since the Sabbath was coming that evening, they make a request to break the legs of those that are being crucified in order to expedite the crucifixion process. Once their legs were broken, they would then sag upon the cross. They would have no ability to push themselves up on the cross in order to gain oxygen, air, And so by sagging, they would eventually suffocate to death. And so they make their request. So the soldiers came, verse 32, and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. So there were two criminals, one to his right and left. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, verse 33, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who, verse 35, saw it, has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. So they go to break the legs of the criminals, they're still alive, they break each one of their legs, expediting the death process for them. But they get to Jesus and they discover that he's already dead. This was a surprise. This was a bit of a shock. The other Gospels record, you know, just sort of an incredulous response from Pilate at the quick death of Jesus. But when they discover that he's already dead, they realize that there's no need to break his legs. He's already out. But one of the soldiers, just in a moment of you know, proving his death, making certain that he's dead or what have you. He takes his spear and he thrusts it into Jesus's side and out of his side comes flowing blood and water. And John makes a big point to say, the one who saw these things is right here writing to you. I bore witness to all of this and he is telling the truth. I I experienced and saw these things with my own two eyes. Now, some believe that what John is trying to do is defeat an early form of Gnosticism by claiming and saying, listen, guys, I was there. Jesus died in the flesh. He was real flesh and bones. He was a man like us. And so quit it with these rumors that he was just a spirit or some kind of illusion operating in front of us. No, I saw the spear go into his side and the blood and the water flow out from his very real human body. Perhaps that's what John was saying. Perhaps that's what John was doing. Others have pointed out that the blood and the water flowing out could be a sign that Jesus died of a ruptured or in a more poetic sense, a broken heart. Nonetheless, whatever the message John is trying to communicate, Jesus is definitely altogether human. And his legs remained unbroken even after his death. And John records in verse 36, he says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, verse 37, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced so john refers to and says listen you know this was to fulfill scripture jesus's legs could not be broken one place that you would find this would be in the obvious picture and typology of jesus as found in the passover lamb back in exodus When the people of Israel were brought out of their slavery in Egypt, the Passover lamb was consumed and eaten and its bones unbroken, Exodus 12, verse 46. And so Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy post-mortem by having bones that are unbroken there upon the cross, Psalm 34, verse 20, hints at the same. And then he says in verse 37, they will look on him whom they have pierced, quoting from Zechariah 12, verse 10. They pierced Jesus through in his side with that spear, and it's a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Now, verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And so here you have the burial of Jesus. And of course, the burial is a very important part of the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the burial is included in the gospel message. That he died according to the scriptures, was buried, and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. So the burial process of Jesus, very real body in a very real way buried and of course here we have the account of two men who were involved in that burial process first joseph of arimathea most prominently he was a religious man a pharisee but a secret disciple of jesus he was a wealthy man he had not consented to jesus's death but a secret disciple And what grace from God to allow even a secret disciple to be a part of this burial plan. And then you have, secondly, Nicodemus. Nicodemus who had come to Jesus at night and questioned him all the way back in John chapter 3. And here we have Nicodemus and we celebrate the fact that it appears that this man was a convert to Christ and had received... And believed his message. And so they put him in this new tomb in verse 41. In which no one had been laid. There in a garden it was a wealthy man's tomb. Which fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53 verse 9. Where it says that they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now Jesus is buried in the ground in the tomb the tomb is closed and of course the other gospels give us the account of the sealing of the tomb the roman guard that was placed outside of the tomb to make sure that the disciples could not steal the body of jesus but john doesn't record that he takes us right into chapter 20 verse 1 where it says now on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, putting together each of the gospel accounts, concerning the resurrection appearances of Christ and the order of the events on that beautiful Sunday morning, are actually rather difficult or up for a little bit of debate. But one thing that is non-debatable is that Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb first, probably with a group of other women who remain unmentioned here by John, but are mentioned in the other gospels but she is the prominent figure and she is the first one to whom jesus is going to appear so she arrives at the tomb early in the morning and she discovers the tomb open and she assumes that they've taken jesus body so she goes to simon and simon peter and john and she announces to them they've taken the lord out of the tomb we do not know where they have laid him. Notice the assumption that someone has taken Jesus's body. Grave robbers were a problem in that era. And Mary is not thinking that Jesus has risen. She's just Thinking his body's not there, I wanted to go there and anoint his body, complete the burial process. Joseph and Nicodemus had to hastily bury Jesus, but the Jews respected the body so much, and this burial custom was a very big deal to them. And so after all of the Sabbaths were over with, Mary wanted to return with other women and care for the body of Jesus and give him a quote-unquote proper burial. So she shows up. He's not there. And she runs back to Peter and to John and says, listen, you know, his body's not there. They've taken it. So verse three, Peter went out with the other disciple. This is, of course, John referring to himself. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now. This is obviously the account of an eyewitness. You know, we ran out to the tomb. I got there first and Peter arrived there second. You can tell that these men were close. John is willing to record that he outran Peter in this foot race. And so they get to the tomb and verse five, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Notice some deference from John towards Peter. You know, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he wasn't going to go in. Peter was going to get there, and Peter would be the first to go into the tomb. Then, verse 6, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. So Peter just moves right in, as you would imagine, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, what's the significance of this part of the resurrection day in the life of the disciples. Let me explain this to you. Basically, you have these two men, Peter and John. These are prominent, obviously very prominent figures in the early church. They were disciples. They would become apostles, but they were really a part of Jesus' closest band. And, And, you know, you really, when you continue out the flow of the New Testament, you have the prominence of Peter. You have the longevity, which led to great prominence of John, and you have the prominence of Paul the Apostle. Really, these are the three apostolic men that have a very worldwide and influential kind of ministry in the early church that even extends now today as we study John's gospel. So these two men go to the tomb, and they see the clothes, the grave clothes of Jesus, And they see the face cloth of Jesus lying in a certain way that causes them to respond, or at least John records this for himself, for John to respond with belief. He saw and believed. And I think what's happening here is that John has recognized at this moment, as he looks at these clothes, They're not strewn about like a man resuscitated, brought back to life, who has the grave clothes on and has to unwrap them to get out. You remember a few chapters earlier when Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. He called Lazarus out of the tomb, and then the direction once Lazarus came out was loose him. In other words, all of these garments that he's been wrapped with, in one sense kind of mummified, You take those garments and you get them off of his body. What John was seeing with the grave clothes of Jesus was that he had not had to unravel himself from his grave clothes. No, in his resurrected body, which was much better and much stronger and much different than a resuscitated body. In this resurrected body, Jesus was able to rise from the dead, pass through his garments, pass through the tomb, pass through material. In just a few verses, we're going to see a upper room locked, no entrance possible, and Jesus will appear in their midst. John sees these grave clothes and he realizes what's going on. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has received a glorified, resurrected body. Far different from, but has a relationship to, his earthly body. So John sees this, and he's filled with belief. And so in response, they go home. But at this point, Jesus does not appear to anyone. So it tells us in verse 11, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and and one at the feet. So she sees this wonderful thing. She lingers at the tomb. Perhaps she arrives after Peter and John have already departed, but she stays there. She is outside the tomb. She stoops in to look into the tomb as she's weeping, and she sees these two angels, one where the head and feet of Jesus would have been. And they said to her, verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She's broken up, she's crying, and they ask her, you know, why are you weeping? An excellent question. She just did not know yet, at this point, the full truth. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. How fascinating is that? There's no expectation in her heart that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. She was surprised when his body wasn't in the tomb. She thought someone had taken his body. She did not suspect that he had risen from the grave. And in this moment whether it's because of his glorified body, whether it's because of a spiritual blindness that has been put upon her, or whether because of the total shock and surprise and and, and a true lack of suspecting that he would rise from the grave, she doesn't recognize Jesus. And Jesus said to her, verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. An interesting question, again, from Jesus, the same question that the angels had asked Woman, why are you weeping? You know, if she had just known who it was that she was speaking with, if she had just known of the resurrection of Jesus, her sorrow would have turned to joy. I think so often when we're able to set our mind upon the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection life that he gives to his followers, to his children, When we think of eternity, when we think of heaven, so often our sorrow can turn into joy. And she just replies and and thinks he's the gardener and says, look, if if you've taken him away, tell me where you've taken him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. There was something about him saying her name. She didn't recognize his appearance, but she recognized his Voice And she recognized the way that he said her name. And she just begins to rejoice. She calls him Rabbani, means teacher. That's the primary relationship she'd had with him up to that point. And she just begins to celebrate. Listen, this woman, Mary, is an interesting figure. She, in her past life, before she had met Christ, had been demonically possessed. It says in Luke chapter 8, verse 2 that there was a gathering of women who followed Jesus who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities and Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out she was a well-to-do woman this group of women provided for Jesus and the disciples out of their means it says in Luke chapter 8 verse 3 but I imagine Mary Having experienced the victory that Jesus gave to her, the victory of being set free from this demonic possession and oppression, she perhaps is wondering, is my victory complete? Is my victory going to last? And when Jesus says her name, I just imagine a flood of celebration entering into her heart, knowing That the victory, it can last. The victory over this demonic realm, it will stick because Jesus has risen from the dead. Listen, Jesus is alive. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, in the life of every single believer, lasting victory is possible. Now, of course, we need to tap into his divine resources to enjoy him and to experience him and to have fellowship with him. But it's good to know and to have hope and to believe that victory is possible with and in Christ Jesus. Her victory was secure. As Paul said to the Philippian church, in Philippians 1 verse 6, he said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Recently, one of my daughters said to me, That she doesn't like dreams because whether they're good or bad, they aren't real. (laughs) She just has a desire to experience what is real. And Mary was like her. She wanted to know, is my victory real? Jesus said to her in verse 17, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. This, of course, foreshadowed the ascension. Don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. But it also spoke of the new covenant. He says, tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. So God had become their Father and their personal God as a result of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Mary Magdalene, verse 18, went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, just the fact that Jesus appeared first to a woman in that culture, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court, would not have been widely regarded or accepted. The reason that he appeared to her first and the reason that it's recorded for us is, I think he appeared to her first because she was there. And she was devoted, and it's recorded because this is the way the events actually unfolded. Now on the evening, verse 19 of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. You know, they had seen the Jews arrest Jesus and crucify him. So as his disciples, they're worried. So they have the door locked, they're fearful, and Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. So he shows up and he gives them the evidence of his hands and his side, these wounds and scars, even as in his resurrected body, there's a remnant or a, a the visibility of what he did for us upon the cross. Even in Revelation chapter 5, when John is in the throne room of God, he sees Jesus as a lamb who had been slain. There's something about him that for all of eternity will cause us to remember the glorious gospel and the great work that he had accomplished for us on the cross, that central event in and for our lives. And so he speaks to them and says, peace be with you as the father sent me. Even so I am sending you. So he continues to speak to them of the mission that would be theirs. I am sending you. Some people take this to mean that he would send them to heal and to feed and to help the poor. Others take it to mean that he was sending them to preach and proclaim, and that is all. I think we can be involved in both. Uh, We can be involved in helping the sick and the poor and the needy, but we continually must be about the primacy of the message of the gospel, the preaching and proclaiming of Jesus. Then he breathed on them in verse 22 after he had said this and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And here I believe that these men received the Spirit of God, were born again. If you forgive, verse 23, the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Jesus obviously isn't introducing something in addition to the gospel in other words he's not saying hey listen guys apostolically you have the power to forgive and to withhold forgiveness and it lies with you no that responsibility is with god but because of the gospel a christian messenger including these apostles is able to preach the gospel message and if somebody receives it they can say If you've received it, you are forgiven. And if someone rejects it, they can say, if you reject this, you are not forgiven. And so Jesus puts that responsibility upon us to preach that forgiveness of sins made possible in the cross of Christ. Now quickly here, as we close out this study in John chapter 20, it says in verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, so there were 10 in that upper room, Judas, of course, not there being the 11th and Thomas being the 12th. And he said, unless I see in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe Thomas wanted to see it and touch himself. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. That eyewitness thing for Thomas led to this beautiful declaration. He had seen the wounds and the scars and he believed. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so Jesus pronounces an incredible beatitude where he announces and says, listen, there are those coming in the future who will not have this luxury, Thomas. You have been their example. You have been a a substitute for them. You were able to see, but blessed are those in the future who will not have this luxury, but will still believe. Now John's conclusion to this book, he says in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the theme of the entire book, and this is the way that we have studied the entire book, to understand it and to know that Jesus is the Son of God, and God the Son. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.